Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and we're happy to see you here this evening. Um, it's an honor to welcome Maureen Corrigan to the Pratt Library. If you're like me, it's always a pleasure to meet a person whose voice is so familiar, one you've been listening to for years. Maureen Corrigan's new book is So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. She's been described as a Gatsby lover extraordinaire. And in her book, she delves deeply into this uh, American literary classic and inspires us to reread it and re-experience it for, again for ourselves. Um, as you know, Maureen Corrigan is the longtime book critic for uh, NPR's Fresh Air. She is also the critic in residence at Georgetown University, and she's winner of the Edgar Award for Criticism. Her previous book is Leave Me Alone, I'm Reading. That's one of my um, theme songs. So Maureen Corrigan, please. Welcome to the Pratt Library. Very happy to be here. First of all, I'm very happy to be here, period, because I left about three hours ago from Georgetown and thought for a while there on 95 I would be calling you and saying, let's reschedule this evening. <laughs> okay. oh, so happy I don't have to do that drive every day. But this is a beautiful space. And I'm, I'm teaching, one of the courses I teach at Georgetown is a detective fiction course, and I'm in the middle of that right now. And we just finished reading Edgar Allan Poe, Murders in the Rue Morgue, and uh, The Purloin Letter. So it's, it's a thrill to be surrounded by the man himself as, as I talk. Um, I first read The Great Gatsby in high school, as I imagine some of you did. I can tell you that I've, this is my 25th year of teaching at Georgetown, that Gatsby is the one novel that a professor who's teaching a freshman English course can assume that her students have read. About 95% of the kids will raise their hand if you say, have you read The Great Gatsby? After that, it, it starts to fragment. There's you know, Catcher in the Rye, To Kill a Mockingbird. A few brave souls have read Moby Dick in high school. You know, but it, it fragments. Um, Gatsby is the one novel that unites us as Americans, as educated Americans, if we've got a novel that unites us. I first read Gatsby in high school, and I did not like it. I thought it was a boring novel about rich people and kind of went on. But, of course, I went to college. I went to grad school in English at the University of Pennsylvania. I started to teach Gatsby. I started to reread it. I began to fall under its spell. I've read Gatsby over 50 times. Um, I've traveled around the country speaking about it, in, mostly in libraries around the country for the Big Read program sponsored by the National Endowment for the Arts. I have played Peoria. I've played Bowling Green, Kentucky, where, where people have come together because they've mostly they've reread Gatsby. They read it for the first time, too, at a younger point, and then they reread it. And so many people said to me, it's a better novel than I remembered it was. What happened to me, a former high school idiot who had no feeling for the novel and then became awakened to it, 
is on a large scale what happened to America in the 1940s and 1950s. America took a second look at the Great Gatsby and was knocked out. That didn't happen the first time. You may know that when Fitzgerald wrote the novel and was published in 1925, April of 1925, it got mixed reviews from the popular press. Um, The famous headline in the New York World Review was Fitzgerald's latest, A Dud. His his well-placed literary friends, many of them appreciated it. Gertrude Stein loved it. Edith Wharton. T.S. Eliot read it three times when he first got it. But the popular press, not so much. And Scribner's printed some more of the, it went through a second printing of the first edition. That second printing was moldering in Scribner's warehouse when Fitzgerald died in Hollywood in 1940. So it never sold out, really. It, it's the first edition, it, um, which was about 25,000 copies. Fitzgerald died thinking he was a failure. So I wanted to find out how the resurrection happened. Some people say it wasn't even a resurrection because there was nothing, you know, it didn't rise the first time. But how did we discover Gatsby as, as a nation and make it our must-read novel on high school syllabi. I wanted to find out how Fitzgerald wrote it, what he was aiming for, and why it's so different from the novels that preceded This Side of Paradise and The Beautiful and Damned. I wanted to also try to, you know, delve deeper into its mysteries, because I don't think we solve great works of literature, but we can we can understand them. We can appreciate their complexity. We can be bowled over once again by how much of them we can't grasp. To do that, I didn't just want to sit at my desk. Um, I love to do close reading. I love to you know, pick things apart. But I wanted to go to some of the places that were important to Fitzgerald. I came here two winters ago to the Bolton Hill uh, section when the row house that Fitzgerald lived in when he was writing, um, uh, <laughs> help me, it's Tender as the Night. It was a long drive. Thank you. Tender as the Night was up for sale. Some, some of you are nodding. Maybe you were on the street that Sunday morning too because I won, there was supposed to be a realtor's open house. There were so many of us on the street that, that uh, January morning and in a Sunday when actually um, the Super Bowl was about to be played that afternoon. And it turned out the house had been sold already, private sale, so we couldn't get in. But people were out there talking about Fitzgerald, talking about Zelda. So it was kind of a, I don't know, an impromptu seminar out there on the street, which was exciting. I went to the University of South Carolina to look at their Fitzgerald archives. Um, a, a, a professor named Matthew J. Brookley, whose name would be familiar to you if, if you studied American literature, he was uh, an expert on Fitzgerald, an expert on Hemingway. He became friends with Scotty Fitzgerald very early on in the 1960s, Scotty, the Fitzgerald's daughter. And he began to collect Fitzgerald manuscripts, 
tchotchkes. <laughs> I mean, I got to hold Fitzgerald's briefcase from his Hollywood years. They have that. They have a lot of Fitzgerald memorabilia as well as uh, letters and photographs. They have the Fitzgerald's private photograph albums, which some of the pictures are in my book. I went to Princeton because, of, of course, Princeton is where Fitzgerald went as an undergrad. He never graduated. His grades tanked while he was at Princeton. He was having too good a time at the eating clubs and in the drama societies, and he was on academic probation when World War I started, and he decided to um, join up. So he never actually graduated. But Princeton has his papers and also the manuscript of The Great Gatsby, which is in a climate-controlled vault uh, <laughs> down, down, down um, in, in the bowels of Firestone Library. It's digitized, so anyone who's interested can go online tonight and look at the manuscript of The Great Gatsby and see the many changes that Fitzgerald made with that manuscript. I went out onto the Long Island Sound because I'm a geographically challenged person, and I even though I grew up in Sunnyside, Queens, so I grew up actually very close to the Valley of Ashes in the novel, I wanted, I had never been out to that part of Long Island Sound, Manhasset and Great Neck, where you can see the two eggs that Fitzgerald talks about in the novel, East Egg and West Egg. So much has changed and yet out there the landscape of the novel still exists. And in fact, on the tip of East Egg, where Daisy Buchanan's mansion was in the novel, the man who started the Arizona Ice Tea Company has built this lavish palace of a, of a house. So it's, you know, it's still there, those houses that take your breath away and mansions. Um, that landscape is still there. And scariest of all, I went back to my old high school which I had not felt the urge to do in almost 40 years. My high school is in Astoria, which is in the novel. And I wanted to go back to the place where I first read Gatsby and, and sit in on classes that were reading Gatsby for the first time to get a sense of how these kids were reading Gatsby. This was about two months before the movie came out, the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. So the kids were very excited about that. But it was so interesting to hear their take on Gatsby, the you know, 16, 17-year-old fresh take on Gatsby. It's, it's a different one from the one that those of us who've read the novel over and over again have, and those of us who are older and may identify more with Nick's voice of yearning and loss and regret. Their Gatsby is all about obsession <laughs> and fixation on the beloved object. And it, it was, well, I, I talk about it at the end of my book. It was, it was eye-opening to go back and listen to them. One of the things I, be, I appreciated more as I was researching the book was just what an incredibly over-the-top, symbolic, schematic novel this is. It's such a weird novel. It's our most American novel and our most un-American novel at once. 
I talk in my book a lot about the debt I think Gatsby owes to the hard-boiled detective tradition, which was really gathering force in New York in the late teens and throughout the 20s. The hard-boiled detective stories. Um, if you've got Dashiell Hammett in your mind, Raymond Chandler, who's a bit later, that story about solitary detectives walking down mean streets and investigating a fallen world, the slang of those novels, um, the sense of fadedness of those novels. When you look at Gatsby, well, first of all, you've got Gatsby's name. Gat is 20 slang for a gun. And Gatsby makes his fortune, of course, in the bootleg business. He, he's a friend of underworld figures, like Meyer Wolfsheim, who was modeled after an actual gangster, Arnold Rothstein, who, who was suspected of fixing the 1919 World Series, the Black Sox scandal. There are three violent deaths in the novel. Um, the novel is obsessed with cars, which is certainly an aspect that later on, the film noirs that were made from the hard-boiled detective fiction novels of the 20s and, and 30s picked up on. If those, those, anybody in here who has ever seen, for instance, Double Indemnity with Barbara Stanwyck, right? When a woman is behind the wheel, when a woman is in the driver's seat, it's always bad news. She's, you know, I mean, think about it. Go, go through the mentalist. Here in Gatsby, we've got a femme fatale behind the driver's seat. And if you don't remember what I'm talking about, go back and read the novel again. Daisy is driving and hits Myrtle Wilson and kills her. Gatsby takes the rap for it, but it's Daisy who's driving. This is a novel that's expressing a lot of anxieties about women and their newfound power. This is the era of the flapper. Women are drinking. They're, they're wearing short skirts. They're smoking. They're having sex outside of marriage. They're driving cars. They're voting. The novel is nervous about that. Fitzgerald told his editor, Maxwell Perkins, that he wanted to write something intricately patterned and strange. This was back in 1922 when he was first thinking about writing his third novel, The Great Gatsby. And boy, is it ever intricately patterned and strange. There are 450 time words in The Great Gatsby. Yes, somebody has sat down and counted them all. This is a novel that's very aware of an ultimate deadline um, looming. I'm going to ruin it for you, those of you who, who ha don't remember. But Gatsby, Gatsby's dead on page one of the novel, so I'm not ruining it for you. Uh, the novel is retrospective. Nick Carraway is remembering this summer of 1922 and all of the v events that happened. But because he's remembering, he also knows that this ultimate tragedy is looming in the distance. 450 time words. The novel is absolutely infested with symbols about temperature, about color, the green light, about eyes, right? Uh, about direction, um, flower, flower symbolism, myrtle and daisy, those are two flower names. Um, classical imagery, Gatsby is a Prometheus figure. He's reaching, you know, he's reaching for fire. He's reaching for for something that's going to be denied to him. Um, and like I said, cars, Jordan Baker, the third woman in the novel, the third prominent female character in the novel, her name derives from two 
car makes of the time, the Jordan and the Baker. I could go on and on. J, uh, Jonathan Franzen, the novelist, has said that Gatsby tells the ultimate fable of America, but it does so in language that goes down so easy you think you're eating whipped cream. You can read the novel and sort of only be dimly aware of so many of these symbols. The meeting between Daisy and Gatsby takes place in the dead center of the novel. Um, Every chapter is patterned around a party. It's structured around a party, beginning with that opening dinner party at the Buchanan's mansion and ending with the failed party of Gatsby's funeral. So the crazy structure, how how obsessed Fitzgerald was with almost over-patterning this novel about American promise. Why does it matter? One reason it matters is if Gatsby is dead at the beginning of the novel, if this is all Nick Carraway's remembering, what a strange novel this is to be our great American novel because nothing can be changed. Everything has already happened. You know, everything is fated to be already. So what about all of those great American themes of promise, of recreation, of ultimate possibility? They seem to be foreclosed already by the time the novel starts. One image that really fascinates me and that hasn't been talked about that much is the water imagery in this novel. Um, Fitzgerald was obsessed with the idea of being, of going under, of drowning. And in that he shares a lot with some of our other great American novelists. So I'll just read you, uh, a short passage about the water imagery in the novel and why it matters, why it might matter if you buy my reading. The great theme running throughout all of Fitzgerald's writing and his life is the nobility of the effort to keep one's head above water despite the almost inevitable certainty of drowning. While the name of the hero in Fitzgerald's last completed novel has always struck me as comic book silly, Dick Diver bluntly spells out what Fitzgerald's work is all about. His best characters dive into life with abandon and then must fight to stay afloat. By the end of their stories, they're almost always going under, if not altogether sunk, weighted down by money worries, overwhelming desire, the burden of their own pasts. Sink or swim, it's the founding dare of America, this meritocracy where everyone, theoretically at least, is free to jump in and test the waters. The fear is, however, that if you don't make it, you'll vanish beneath the waves. So much of American literature is saturated with images of drowning, dissolving, being absorbed by the vastness of the landscape or crowds. It's our great national nightmare. Need I do more to start off the soggy great books parlor game than mention Moby Dick? We spend so much time on our initial high school forays into Gatsby, focusing on those look-at-me symbols of the green light and the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg that we overlook the most pervasive symbol of all, water. Almost every page of the novel references water. Even the briefest summary of its plot is soaked to the bone. 
James Gatz is born again as Jay Gatsby through a watery rite of passage on Dan Cody's yacht. He drowns symbolically in his pool when his dreams spring a leak and he can no longer float. Page for compact page, the great Gatsby may be our dampest exemplar of the great American novel. Fitzgerald didn't just stick his toes in the water here. In this, his most perfect meditation on the American dream and its deadly undertow, he dives in and goes for broke. I mentioned that the reunion between Gatsby and Daisy takes place in the dead center of the novel, in chapter five. Those of you who have the novel in your heads, you'll remember that it's raining that day. And Nick Carraway has agreed to host a tea party where he's invited Daisy. She doesn't know Jay, Jay Gatsby is going to be there. She comes in, sits down in Nick's parlor, and then Gatsby rings the bell. Nick opens the door, and Gatsby is in his beautiful pink suit, soaked to the bone. He's a dead man already. He's drowned already. And what's pulled him under? Well, Daisy, if, if you go back and look at the novel, she is never described as a knockout in the novel. The, th- the thing that makes Daisy attractive, and it, this is said a couple of times, is her voice. And I don't know if you'll remember the famous description. It's repeated a couple of times. Her voice is full of money. That's what they say. Um, I mean, it's almost like I, I imagine Catherine, a young Catherine Hepburn. You know, her voice is full of money. If you know your classical illusions, who are the women whose voices pull men under? It, the sirens. And Daisy is a siren in the novel. She pulls Gatsby under. Her attraction pulls him under. He's killed by George Wilson's bullets but he's killed in his swimming pool, you know? So I, I argue that the great symbol of this novel is not Daisy's green light. It's not the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. It's that first vision that we see of Jay Gatsby at the end of chapter one. Nick Carraway remembers that he's looking out at night across his lawn to Gatsby's mansion, and Gatsby is standing at the edge of his property, reaching out his arms to Daisy's dock where the green light is, across the waters of Long Island Sound. But if you reach too far, if if you extend your grasp too much, the danger is you're going to go under. And so many places, almost every page in this novel references that threat and that water image so it, it's, it's fascinating to me how I think aware Fitzgerald was when he was writing this. I said another thing I wanted to explore in addition to all of these symbols, which I could spend like three days talking about and, and you would not appreciate probably by the second hour I was rambling on, is how, get, how the novel came back. Um, Fitzgerald dies in Hollywood in 1940. He's 44 years old. He dies probably of his third heart attack. He thinks he's a failure. And very quickly after his death, 
things begin to happen. First of all, Fitzgerald's literary friends, people like Edmund Wilson, Malcolm Cowley, Dorothy Parker, um, Alfred Kazin, they, they work very hard to keep Fitzgerald's name and his writing before the public. And then the other thing that happens right away, fairly right away, is World War II. And this, to me, is, is one of the most fascinating stories in all of American literature. During World War II, some of you may know, publishers, paper manufacturers, editors, writers got together and they wanted to do something for the war effort. They wanted to get books overseas to soldiers and sailors and also to guys in prisoners of war camps in Germany and Japan through an arrangement with the Red Cross. The idea that they came up with is something called the Armed Services Editions. These cheap paperbacks that were rectangular, long rectangles. My father was in the Navy during World War II, and he mentioned a couple of times to me that they had these quote-unquote funny paperbacks during the war. I have, this isn't, um, this isn't a real one, but it's meant to look like one. This is a catalog from, from an ex- ex- exhibit that the University of Virginia put on it some years ago about the armed services editions. They were meant to fit in servicemen's pockets. And if you read the Stephen Ambrose book about D-Day, um, or A.J. Liebling, the great New Yorker writer, his reports about going over on a landing craft with, uh, with the guys on D-Day, with the soldiers... There are such powerful descriptions of men sitting on landing crafts reading because, you know, it's one way to cope with what's waiting for you. In, in Ambrose's D-Day book, powerful descriptions of men dead on the beaches of Normandy with the ASEs sticking out of their pockets. Over a million copies of different books were printed of over a thousand titles. Everything from Moby Dick to Homer's Odyssey, to the latest Rex Stout mystery, to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, to um, Hopalong Cassidy, Margaret Mead's Coming of Age in Samoa. Uh, incredible. The greatest distribution of the Armed Services editions was on the eve of D-Day. General Eisenhower's staff was told uh, that every guy going over should have an Armed Services edition with him. And the most popular title in those, in those D-Day editions, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Last week when I was on Fresh Air talking about the book, I, the next day a librarian from um, the, the Academy Award Library, whatever, the Hollywood Motion Picture Library in L.A., sent me a still photo from a documentary about D-Day, and it's a picture of a guy, it's a still from the documentary, a soldier reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn as, you know, as he's going over on the landing craft. Gatsby was chosen in 1945, immediately after Japan surrendered. And over 155,000 copies of The Great Gatsby were distributed to troops overseas. The ASCs were meant to be read seven times before they fell apart. I think they lasted a lot longer than that. And they were printed double double columned like this. So, um, you know, if you do the math, the original printing was for about 25,000 copies. 
1945, 155,000 copies of Gatsby go out to the troops. Of course, after the war, we get the paperback revolution. We get early TV. The Philco Theater, for instance, did a production of The Great Gatsby. Um, 1949, we get the second movie of The Great Gatsby. The first was in 1926. It was a silent film. It's been lost. But we still have the trailer. You can watch the trailer, as I did at the Library of Congress. The 1949 version of Gatsby with Alan Ladd is filmed almost like a noir. The first image that you get of Jay Gatsby, he's leaning out of a speeding roadster and he's machine gunning down his enemies in the bootleg business. It's it's a really interesting um, version of Gatsby. And I like Ladd as Gatsby because he's good looking and vacant, you know, <laughs> and that's, I think that's kind of the requisite for, for Jay Gatsby, right? Um, And then, of course, on and on. By the late 50s, Gatsby is on high school and college syllabi. Um, It's it's sort of a staple at that point already. Fitzgerald, of course, knew none of this. He died in 1940. And I thought I would close my part of this evening and maybe open things up for discussion um, by reading you about that last year or so in Hollywood. Um, There's a story about Fitzgerald's Hollywood years that I can't get out of my head. Shortly after he met Sheila Graham, the gossip columnist who he lived with in Hollywood, in 1937, Fitzgerald read in the paper that the Pasadena Playhouse was presenting a stage adaptation of his short story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. Fitzgerald decided to put on the dog. He called the playhouse, announced that he was the author, and reserved two seats. He also reserved a chauffeured limousine and took Sheila in evening clothes out to dinner and on to the theater. When they arrived, no one was in the lobby. It turned out that some students were performing the play in an upstairs hall. The upstairs hall was pretty empty, too. Just about a dozen or so casually dressed people, mostly the players' mothers, it seemed, in the audience. Afterward, Fitzgerald went backstage to congratulate the student players, later telling Sheila Graham, they were nice kids. I told them they'd done a good job. Anyone who loves Fitzgerald can't help but wish that he could have had a glimpse into the future. Just a couple of decades beyond his own death, he would have seen crowds of students, much like those Pasadena amateur actors, reading The Great Gatsby in college and high school classrooms across America. Further on, he would have seen several more Gatsby films, the operas, the ballet, and Gats, the seven-hour off-Broadway production um, that I saw twice in New York, which is fabulous. It's the best, best Gatsby rendering that I've ever seen. He would have seen volumes of criticism and biographies towering in piles as big as the Ritz, and he would have seen the money, how he would have reveled in the money. But Fitzgerald saw none of that. In the late 1930s, he drew up a three-page list for Sheila Graham of, quote-unquote, possibly valuable books in his library. Princeton has it in their collection. It's a handwritten list. The list included a first edition of The Wasteland and notes on his personal copies of his own books. At the end of page three, he writes, probable value of library at forced sale, $300. 
Fitzgerald's last royalty check was for $13.13. His young secretary, Frances Kroll Ring, who, as far as I know, is still alive and with us. She's in her 90s. Um, Up until a a few years ago, at least, she was still going to visiting schools in Los Angeles, where she lives, to talk about Fitzgerald. She wrote a great little memoir about him called Against the Current that I highly recommend about their Hollywood years together. Anyway, his young secretary, Frances Kroll Ring, remembered that when that final royalty statement came through from Scribner's, and this is Francis Kroll Ring speaking, the handful of sales proved that the author himself was the only purchaser. He told me about it, laughing bitterly. In May of 1940, Fitzgerald wrote a letter to Maxwell Perkins, his editor, in which he abruptly detoured from updates about his work in Hollywood to talk for two paragraphs about Gatsby. I think it's one of the saddest literary letters ever written. As so often happens with Fitzgerald, though, there's also that eerie quality of prescience. Here's an excerpt from the letter that I'll close with. He references his daughter, Scotty, who's about to enter college. I wish I was in print. It will be odd a year or so from now when Scotty assures her friends I was an author and finds that no book is procurable. Would the 25-cent press keep Gatsby in the public eye, or is the book unpopular? He puts that in italics. Has it had its chance? Would a popular reissue in that series with a preface, not by me, but by one of its admirers, I can maybe pick one, make it a favorite with classrooms, professors, lovers of English prose, anybody? But to die so completely and unjustly after having given so much. Even now, there is little published in American fiction that doesn't slightly bear my stamp. In a small way, I was an original. He's dead about four months after he writes that letter. So I do think mostly, I do mostly believe in a literary meritocracy. I do think Great books eventually do find their audiences most times. But, you know, the key word is eventually. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't happen until after an author dies. So thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, I wrote the book. What am I going to say, Moby Dick? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, you know... I'm not just being the polite English professor. They're all great. I think Gatsby is the greatest. I think word for word, page for page. I mean, it's only about 185 pages. That language, Jonathan Yardley, my colleague at the Washington Post, um, has said that the last seven and a half pages of The Great Gatsby 
contain the most beautiful and true language that any writer has ever written about America. And I think he's right. I mean, I love Moby Dick. I love Steinbeck. You know, I love Huckleberry Finn. If I had to choose one novel to go to outer space with, <laughs> this one, this is the one I would choose. Um, he died of a heart attack. And people think that it was probably his third heart attack. He also had um, tuber- um, um, yeah, uh, water in the lung, uh, T- TB, all, all his life. Um, maybe as early as childhood, certainly by the time he was at Princeton. So that didn't help. The drinking, of course, didn't help, the alcoholism. But the, you know, the cause of death is, is a heart attack. And I don't know, some of you probably know the strange story about his burial. Um, John Kelly in the Washington Post told it again this weekend. I think he was reading my book, but he, he didn't give me credit. Um, Fitz, you know, Fitzgerald's father's family is, it, it was, is from around here. Um, and his father went to Georgetown, did not graduate. I guess it was a family tradition not to graduate. But um, the burial plot of the Fitzgeralds is in Rockville. And when Fitzgerald died, his body was taken back here. Pumphrey's funeral home, which is still on Wisconsin Avenue in, in Bethesda, held the, sur- the, the wake. But he was denied burial in St. Mary's churchyard. Fitzgerald was born Catholic. It's a Catholic church. Church is beautiful, the old church, by the way. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad. He was denied burial because it was said that he had not performed his Easter duty as a Catholic for many years, meaning going to confession and taking communion. There's other speculation, too, that the novels didn't help, that living with Sheila Graham didn't help. So he was buried in a Protestant cemetery, Rockville Union Cemetery, by a Protestant minister who didn't know who he was. It was raining, and there were about 15 people there. If you know your great Gatsby, it sounds familiar. It sounds like Gatsby's funeral. It's all, you know. Years later, 1975, Scotty Fitzgerald, uh, Scott and Zelda's daughter, got her parents moved to St. Mary's. And I was just out there yesterday. There's, um, there's a slab on their grave that, contain, that has the last words of the great Gatsby written on it. So we beat on, boats against the current, born back ceaselessly into the past. People leave liquor bottles, they leave uh, stones, they leave uh, coins, which I don't quite understand. They leave flowers, they leave manuscripts. It's, it's, it's a lovely spot, and it's amazing to me how many people don't know it's there, how many people in Georgetown's English department don't know it's there. Yeah, it, it, yeah it's... Yeah, yeah. well, Fitzgerald himself thought that one big strike against it was that it did not contain any sympathetic female characters. And echoing what we say today, or anticipating what we say today, he said, women drive the fiction market. And, I, you know, that, that was a strike against it. Um, Maxwell Perkins, his editor, thought maybe it was too short. What's so interesting to me, reading through the contemporary reviews from newspapers all around the country and the world, 
the popular reviewers often read it as a straight crime novel. Uh, they talked a lot about the bootlegging, um, the shady characters in it. Uh, they call Gatsby, one guy calls him a super four flusher. So it, it's almost as though they're underrating it as just like a, a tough guy gangster. I have a picture in my book of a glass slide from the 1926 silent film. You know, theaters back then used to show previews by putting like a glass slide in a projector, and it's almost like a billboard that would have been put up in color on the screen. The glass slide is fabulous because it's, a, it's, it's the murder scene um, of Myrtle Wilson. Daisy is behind the wheel, and she's sort of smiling. Gatsby is like going, oh, no, Myrtle is you know, behind the wheel. You know, that's what they focused on, the violence, the, of course the drinking, the, the loose lifestyle, but the shady stuff. So I think maybe it was also underrated because it was considered to be something of a crime story, and they couldn't place, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he, and he never liked the title. He was trying to change the title. When the, novel, when the book was being p- printed, he was begging Maxwell Perkins, can we change the title? Every title that Fitzgerald came up with was worse. Um, uh, green, uh, gold-hatted Lover, Tremalchio and West Egg, I mean, Under the Red, White, and Blue, awful, awful. Anyway, let me get something else. Yeah. 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 And it's a downer. Yeah. It's a downer. Like like all of our great novels are, right? So it's that may have been a problem. It's both. It's both. I can never peel the language and the message apart. It's both. It delivers that message about the doomed beauty of trying, of reaching, in language that's all American, but that's unearthly. So it's the message, we, you know, you got to love the message. The, the American dream may be a mirage, but isn't it beautiful? The language that Fitzgerald uses to describe it makes it irresistible, even though we, kn- we know in the novel it's a mirage. So they go together. It, yeah. Let me get. Do you have any theories as to why it's been so often adopted as a movie but never really very successfully? Yeah. It seems like it has a lot of good elements of a movie and nobody seems to get it right. Is that just. Yeah. My favorite movie, you know, I think the Alan Ladd version is now on Netflix thanks to Baz Luhrmann's version. So um, check it out. Um, It's not Gatsby either, but it's more fun than the other versions. um, it's hard. Gatsby is hard because it is the language, and it tends to be filmed as a love story, and that doesn't do justice to all of the other currents in the novel. What made me insane about Baz Luhrmann's version, you know, which oh, it's spectacle, it's fun, but it's not Gatsby, but it's fun. Is he, he, I think he um, underplayed the class element in Gatsby. I think it's our one great, out of all the great American novel usual suspects that you just named, it really is the one that 
that tends to most foreground class. Um, and I think Lerman, by the way, didn't include that line about Daisy's voice. Her voice is full of money. It's not in that film version. Yeah. This is just a question. I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that uh, since we're 1812, uh, uh, wasn't Francis Scott Key? Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why he was named Francis Scott Key for sure. A very distant, you know, second cousin. The 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 other distant cousin who um, who the family didn't talk about so much was Mary Surratt. <laughs> so, but yeah, Francis Scott Key. Yeah. What happened to his daughter? His daughter went to Vassar. She married. She had four children. She moved to Washington. She lived in in Georgetown, in and around Georgetown for a a long time. She was a Democratic Party committee woman. Um, She also wrote, um, I think it was for Life magazine for a while. She, um, and and she's one of the best daughters of that we have in literature. She... Here's here's a wonderful sto- story about Scotty Fitzgerald. And by the way, I think he was a pretty good father. He was like a tiger dad. He was always on her about her grace. But he was involved. You know, he was he was involved. Um, after after in the late forties, the family was you know had fallen on some hard time. You know, money was short, so. Scotty offered Fitzgerald's papers to Princeton, his alma mater, and Princeton turned them turned turned it down. You know they weren't interested. And then a couple of years passed, late forties, early fifties, and they make an offer: a thousand dollars for the lot, including, of course, the manuscript of the Great Gatsby, all his letters, on and on. At that point an editor from Scribner's gets involved because he thinks Princeton University is really taking advantage of the Fitzgerald family, of Scotty. Um, at the, you know, at that point, Zelda had died by then. And he says to the um, head librarian at Princeton, you know, this isn't right. And the librarian at the time, the head librarian says, the university librarian, I should say, says, Princeton is not in the business of supporting um, the family of second-rate Midwest hacks. That's a quote. Who had the, wait, it goes on. Who had the good fortune to attend Princeton even if it was, even if it was not Princeton's good fortune. So finally, you know, but, but Scotty was offering the papers, which is what all of that stuff is called, the manuscripts, the letters, the collection, she was also offering it to Princeton as a way to protect it. And people were offering to buy different parts of that collection, and she didn't want to break it up. And so finally the deal is going through, and she just waves the $1,000 and gives it to Princeton. But she did it she, I, I think she knew what her father was. She saved all his letters from when she was a child through teenhood um, until he died and stopped, you know, and the letters stopped. I, I, I think her story is pretty powerful. No, no, no. She died um, 
in, it, let's see, she got them reburied in, in 1975. She died a few years after that. I don't have the exact, I think in the early 80s. Hmm? I don't know. Early 80s. She was born in 1921 or two. So, you know, not, she died of cancer. She wasn't that old. Yeah. Can you talk a What they what they seem to I agree, and I had been going around the country for the big read, you know, speaking to audiences like us tonight, you know, those of us in the room tonight, you know, um, so middle aged and up, right, and and so we're like we're, I would speak to the converted, like oh well, you need to read it more than once, and you need to get older to really understand it and to appreciate the tone of regret and yearning and loss and you know, kind of be, um, everybody, almost everybody would be on the same page. When I went to high school, and, you know, my students at Georgetown are not that much older, but they've read it already. I wanted to get the first read, you know. Um, what I loved about those students and what they made me feel is, you know, the black and whiteness of Gatsby's dedication to getting Daisy back. They got that. You know, the, the over-the-topness of the novel. That's what they live as adolescents. And they got that over-the-topness of his passion. And they made me see that again. Um, one thing that really struck them, I told them an anecdote about Fitzgerald's youth. You know, Daisy is modeled, well, of course on Zelda, but really on his first love, Ginevra King, who he met when he was a sophomore at Princeton, he was 18, she was 16, and he went back to St. Paul at Christmas time and met her at a dance. She came from a very wealthy Chicago family. She was in St. Paul as the guest of a friend of hers. They met and, you know, sort of fell in love. Her letters were published a few years ago. Her letters were saved. He Scott requested that his letters be destroyed after the relationship ended, so we don't have his letters. Most of the courtship was ha took place via letter because they were apart from each other, but he went to visit her a few times, and I've seen pictures of Ginevra King's mansion in Chicago at the time. Her father was, you know, a stockbroker and everything else. Her mansion looks like a small department store. So Scott Fitzgerald, whose family, you know, was always kind of in that gray area. His mother's family had money from the grocery store um, empire that they had. His father had, as Fitzgerald said, breeding, but not cash. And they lived on, when he was growing up, mostly on Summit Avenue in St. Paul, which is a lot of grand mansions, but they always rented. And he went to... Uh, St. Paul Academy in Hackensack, New Jersey. He went to Princeton because um, 
a maiden aunt chipped in because his grandmother died. So it's always that sense of you could fall through the cracks really easily. You could go under really easily. Fitzgerald said toward the end of his life, that was always my story, a poor boy at a rich boy's school. You know, so you you always get that sense of the outsider looking in. Anyway, Fitzgerald goes to visit Ginevra King at her mansion and Ginevra's father in Scott's hearing in another room, says very loudly, poor boys shouldn't think of marrying rich girls. When I told that to the kids at my old high school, they went, <gasps> you know, and I think that they, they, they got that humiliation. They did not like Nick Carraway. They thought Nick was not a good friend, that he, he shakes Tom Buchanan's hand at the end of the novel. He, um, they didn't think he was enough of a man of action. <laughs> they thought, they thought Gatsby was indeed the one pure soul. And they loved him for that, that, that he was pure, that he was obsessive and over the top. So that, that was, that was powerful to hear. Oh, and then the other thing I learned very specifically was I always ask the kids in my classes, what does it mean that Daisy cries when she sees those beautiful shirts on her first visit to Gatsby's mansion? Because I'm always, why is she crying? What's that about? And I, you know, I have a few theories, but I asked them. One girl in one class said something that stopped the class dead. She said she cries because she sees that Gatsby has become like Tom, that he's rich like Tom, and that the poor boy who she loved originally is no longer there. I don't know if she's right, but it was just like, oh, never even thought of that. The novel, like any great novel, you can keep thinking about it and you keep pulling different things out of it. So. Did he take writing classes or anything? I mean, did he? No. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Everything, I think. Yeah, yeah. I wondered how. Yeah. When he's at Princeton, and first of all, Edmund Wilson, the great literary critic, is a year or two above him at Princeton, but they become great friends. And Wilson is one of the people at Princeton who begins to direct Scott's reading. Um, uh, Compton McKenzie... Uh, John Forsythe, you know, the uh, John, uh, John Galsworthy, rather, the Forsythe saga. He's into those things. There's a review of my book in the New Yorker this week. And um, uh, the reviewer, whose name I blocked out, even though he says some good things about my book, he thinks that Compton McKenzie and this crowd is much more important than I do. They, they, I think they influence Fitzgerald's early more old-fashioned novels, almost. The language is more old-fashioned, but by the time you get to Gatsby, it's tough. It's, it's, it's a whole other world and language that we're getting. Also, Joseph Conrad, and he's the one who's perhaps, I think, the most important to Gatsby because Conrad gave Fitzgerald the idea to have a narrator who was partly involved but an observer, not to have the, a third-person omniscient narrator. So the first time Fitzgerald wrote Gatsby, he wrote it in the third person, the first draft. Um, 
And I, I found a letter at the University of South Carolina that has not been collected that I include in my book. I got very excited about this letter because it's written from Great Neck, Long Island, three days before Fitzgerald gets on a boat with his family to go to the Riviera. And it's always been thought, well, he wrote Gatsby on the Riviera. He says in the letter to this newspaper guy who wants to interview him, I can't meet you for an interview. We're packing. My third novel just finished which is Gatsby, is an attempt at, and you can't quite read that last one. <laughs> it's, it's on a fold. I mean, you can take a look at it yourself. It's, it's on a fold. There are cigarette burns in the letter. It's either form, force, or farce. And I showed it to various Fitzgerald experts who've, who are really familiar with his handwriting. Most people vote for form. But Forrest is kind of cool, too. There are, Gatsby is very funny at the beginning, you know, so it's more, more treasures to find. Um, <laughs> yes? What did he read? What were his... Well, some of the authors who I just named, he loved to make up reading lists. And Princeton has so many of these reading lists. They're fascinating. He read, he loved the romantic poets, as you know, you know, from... Keats, right? Tender is the night. That's that's from uh, um, Ode to a, um, a Nightingale. Um, he loved, you know, he loved Shakespeare. He loved Keats. He loved the cl- Greek classics. Um, Stendhal, the Red and Black. That's on his list all the time. What I think is so interesting is he's always got Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon on every reading list he makes up for people. But it's mostly the the West the Western canon who he. Um, he liked, he liked Dreiser. He loved Willa Cather, um, who I think it's really time for a big Willa Cather revival. I love her, too. So um, those, those were some. He was a good friend. He was a good friend to other writers. And um, writing this book, I still love Hemingway's novels, many of them. But what a bastard he was. <laughs> You know, Fitzgerald really hooked Hemingway up with Max Perkins, with Scribner's, and Hemingway stabbed him in the back. You know, um, we have the Paul Mason collection. Yes, yes, who was a friend, yes. Yes, and I think, Mark, um, isn't there a presentation copy to Mankin? Oh, probably. And Mankin used to paste letters from the authors into the front of the book. Yeah. Um, I was going to tell you everything. One thing that wasn't tasteful at home because Fitzgerald wrote her on the flyleaf, he ranks the stories in Flappers and Philosophy. Oh. And it's really fun because it's like good, work. Interesting. Trash. Yeah, but yeah. Trash, put, yeah. Uh, the story most people I know have read it like, Bernice Bob. Oh, I love Bernice Bob's are here. Oh, that's funny. He had to write it quick for money. Yeah. He wanted to do research yeah. for yeah. because, I don't know, it's not trash. Uh, but I don't know that he had, you know, he didn't have a, that great of opinion of himself, I think. And he was yeah. Enemy. When you were yeah. talking about, I'm a big fan of Nathaniel West. Mm-hmm. And so was Fitzgerald. Yeah. 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 He was so nice. I mean, yeah. just like he promoted anyway, he promoted Nathaniel Yeah. But the Day of the Locust is kind of almost a dark retelling of Gatsby. You think Faye Greener, the main character? I could go on and on with that. I think of, I think of, I think of that with, yeah. with uh, Gatsby. Well, you, 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 I'm sure you know the, the literary anecdote that 
their deaths, right? I was thinking of writing a play about the Midwest, yeah. and it, it opens with their car crash. Yeah, yeah. It hears it on the radio. If, if you don't know what we're talking about, West and his wife, Eileen, yeah, and we can, were, uh, were in Mexico, I think, when they heard the news about Fitzgerald's death in Hollywood. And, Nes- and West was a notoriously bad driver. They got into a terrible car crash um, on their way back to California. Yeah, yeah. Now, he, it, the mutual admiration society there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I honestly think the uh, University of South Carolina because because it's a state institution they don't have things locked away that you, if you're a researcher it's open to you. And you know, within 5 minutes of arriving I was down in the vault um holding first editions of Gatsby um holding the flask that uh, that Zelda gave to Scott in 1919. So things like that, looking at letters, um, handling them. And one of the most touching and, and sad um, objects that they have at, at the University of South Carolina is Fitzgerald's briefcase from his Hollywood years. Uh, the uh, librarian there opened up a case after we got to know each other on the third day and he said you want to hold it and I said oh yeah and it's it's this battered you know leather briefcase like the kind we used to have um those old kind of school briefcases but Fitzgerald's name is engraved in gold on it and then his address and the address is was it 597 Fifth Avenue? It's the address of the Scribner's building. It's his only personal, it's his only home. It's his only permanent address because he's moving from rented rooms. And, you know, it's so it really, that briefcase really tells you what life was like for him um, in those years. Yeah. Let's make it the last one. Okay. She she was treated a lot of. She had her first breakdown in um, when she was twenty nine in Paris, and she was hospitalized at a Swiss, you know, institution. Um, she was at Shepherd Pratt for a while. She was at, here at Hopkins. Um, that's why he was living around here. So um, Zelda is a heartbreaking story. I mean, it, it's a story about a woman who. So it seemed like mental illness ran in the family. And then, of course, she was that first generation of women who drank a lot in public and partied a lot. And who knows, you know, people didn't know what kind of effect that was going to have. Um, so it, it's sad. Their, their good times together lasted about 10 years. And, and then Fitzgerald, like Walt Whitman, always read his life in tandem with the course of the nations. So the Great Depression hits, and they go—they nosedive too, personally. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you.